Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy, while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazalowski, and it's time to talk tech. It's been a while since we've talked U.S. government surveillance reform on the show. That's partially because there was an actual legislative win on the front when the USA Freedom Act passed just over a year ago. That bill essentially ended the NSA's bulk collection of Americans' communications records. The timing of the passage of the USA Freedom Act had a fair amount to do with the imminent expiration of Section 215 of the Patriot Act, under which the bulk collection was being conducted. Well, there is another expiring section upon us that is helping advance discussion around the need for greater government surveillance reforms. This one is Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, of the notorious FISA court. To talk about Section 702, what it means, and why it should be reformed, I am pleased to welcome two of our surveillance reform smarties to Tech Talk, the esteemed Mr. Greg Nojime and his brilliant protege, Yaja Butler. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks Always great to have you two here. So first, could you tell me a little bit about what Section 702 of FISA is, what it does, and why it's problematic? Well, that's a loaded question. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. All in so one quick hit. Section 702 <laughs> authorizes, in certain circumstances, the warrantless uh, collection and surveillance of um, electronic communications content. Um, so those uh, circumstances are when you're targeting non-U.S. persons located abroad and when a significant purpose of that collection is to gather foreign intelligence information. So on the face of it, it sounds like a really limited authority, but actually it's quite broad and, and, and that's the problem we have with it. So th the scope of it is not actually completely limited to just what you would think about when you think of foreign intelligence information. And by that I mean this isn't just about counterterrorism. Um, under the statute itself, the definition of foreign intelligence information is extremely broad and it can include things that are, for example, related to uh, U.S. foreign affairs, <laughs> which can mean pretty much anything. Um, so relatedly, um, in addition to its broad scope, um, it is used for a lot of purposes that aren't related to foreign intelligence or to national security. Um, anything that is gathered under Section 702, for example, can be used by the FBI to investigate any crime. That crime does not have to be limited to national security or to foreign intelligence. So the statute on its face seems very narrow, very limited, but really it's much broader in scope and much broader in use. And, and that's something that we want to try to rein in. Brian, uh, Section 702, when it was adopted in 2008, marked a sea change in surveillance conducted under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Prior to this statute, the government had to go in front of a court and prove that it had probable cause that the target of its surveillance was an agent of a foreign power, like a terrorist or a spy. Um, under this authority, it doesn't have to do that. Under old FISA, there were about 1,500 targets a year. Under this section alone, there's more than 90,000. Wow. So things have changed dramatically uh, uh, the surveillance being conducted is quite broad. And I would assume because this is digital communications that it's obviously not just the foreign 
agents communications but a lot of other people that are either communicating with or kind of you know I remember hearing talks about hops is there something in this like two hops away three hops away uh, there's no hopping no hopping oh good <laughs> no. we don't have to worry about explaining hopping um, uh, instead what happens is the government is targeting uh, a person it believes to be a non-American who is abroad and it starts listening in on that person or it collects their stored communications or it does both. Uh, oftentimes, those people will be communicating with people who are Americans. Think about email messages that you send and you CC or BCC 15 people. Right. If one of those people isn't an American, they are eligible for this surveillance. Wow. Um, so the, it ends up sweeping in the communications of a lot of people in the United States and of a lot of people who are citizens or residents of, of the United States. And one of the problems is that the government regards that information as lawfully collected and therefore fair game to be used as they as they please. So could you uh, just tell us, tell me a little bit under Section 702, what is the main difference between um, the surveillance under Section 215 of USA Freedom? So the difference is, is both um, in terms of what is being collected and, and whom the targets could be. So under Section 702, as I said, it is supposed to be geared towards non-U.S. persons located abroad, and it gathers electronic communications content. Um, under Section 215, it didn't necessarily have to be a non-U.S. person located abroad. In, in fact, the order that was leaked by Edward Snowden said that it could be entirely domestic. Um, but at that point, they were only they were only collecting telephony metadata, so they weren't collecting actual electronic content under two fifteen. Okay, um, as someone who lived abroad, I'm definitely thinking about all my correspondence um, <laughs> with non U.S. persons on a regular basis. So then, that data, say I was on the CC of an email, that data, how long is it stored? Um, you know, how long would my information, you know, of that correspondence be in this database that, as you're saying, could be searched kind of at any time for non, you know, non-related reasons? It, it really all depends on what you're talking about. Um, so uh, under the current minimization procedures, wholly domestic communications are supposed to be destroyed immediately upon recognition. Um, I think the key there is upon recognition. Sure. I, I don't think that people are actively going out to search and find for domestic communications to throw away. Um, and, and I think more often than not, there isn't anything that definitively shows that a communication is domestic. And without that, they are not entitled to assume that it's domestic. Um, I, I think all other communications, the phase-off period is supposed to be around two to five years, depending on how it was collected, whether it was collected under upstream or whether it was collected under PRISM. But even then, we have exceptions. One of the biggest exceptions that currently exists is the exception for uh, crypt analysis. So if information that is gathered is encrypted, um, it can actually be retained for an indefinite period of time while they go through trying to decipher it. And then as soon as they decipher it, it moves to the other normal phase-off period. Think, think about what that means. What that means is as we move toward more uh, types of encrypted communications, as more and more communications are encrypted, as they should be, more and more communications collected in this program will be retained indefinitely. That's why the NSA has to build uh, a data center out in Utah 
that takes up uh, a significant <laughs> amount of space uh, and that uh, uh, is, is um, going to be collecting an awful lot of content. To, to go back to your earlier question, 215, it's about non-content, metadata, transactional records, who called whom. Um, this is about content, so it's even more sensitive information, mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, retained longer. So one of the other things I remember, you know, hearing both of you, more Greg at this time, talking during USA Freedom about, you know, Section 215 really not being effective. There was no proven example that that mass uh, collection of data or metadata, as you just said, was beneficial. But in this case, I read the comments that you all submitted um, to the Senate on this, and it seems as though you're acknowledging that this program has been effective in some cases. Does that affect your advocacy efforts here? It does. Um, what what uh, has been reported is that Section 702 um, has been effective in thwarting actual terrorist attacks, uh, and it's been reported not just by the intelligence community, but it's been confirmed by the President's Review Board, by the P-Club, and by the best friend of um, civil liberties and or one of the best friends of civil liberties in the surveillance area in in the Senate, Senator Wyden. So I think there's strong evidence that that it has been effective. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we're not saying that Congress should do away with this program completely, but we do think it can be narrowed and made more effective by focusing on the bad guys. Right. We really want it to just become more focused on what its purported purpose is. Whenever you hear policymakers and, and you know members of Congress talk about this program, they talk about it in a counterterrorism, in a national security, foreign intelligence-related context. Um, so why don't we narrow the program to make sure that it is actually focused for those purposes? And, and I think when it comes to effectiveness, one thing to remember is, is that, you know, yes, a program can be effective, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the way we should go. So I'm sure it would be very effective to gather every single email, f digital photograph, um, note that you take on your computer, instant messenger that you have, all of your electronic communications, and just send it right to the NSA so that they can <laughs> have it, just in case. Um, but we as a society have decided that we don't want that. So although our message here isn't, let's just completely scrap this program, we certainly want it to be more narrowly tailored, and, and we want it to be subject to the appropriate level of oversight given the sensitivity of this data that's being gathered. Great. So then, I guess just to you know, kind of make it very clear and concrete, what would you say are the three most important reforms that you're asking for um, in terms of Section 702, especially with the, the sunset, I guess, about a year away, well, a year and a half away now? I'll do the first one. <laughs> first, the scope of the surveillance that's authorized should be narrowed. As Yaja was saying at the outset, right now they can wiretap a person who's outside the United States just because they believe the person has information that might be relevant to U.S. foreign policy. That's a lot of information. Think about the person who's protesting. Uh, they're, they're in a demonstration in Istanbul against the government. What that person is saying is relevant to U.S. foreign policy because it shows why they're out on the streets and it gives some indication about the stability of the government. Um, it's relevant to foreign policy. Should it be a reason to wiretap a person just because they're protesting? I don't think so. Um, 
uh, often when the program is defended by members of Congress, it's defended as a counterterrorism tool. Well, maybe it should be limited to counterterrorism purposes and to some other more narrowly defined national security purposes. That's one of our uh, reforms. Um, another one would be limiting what's called about collection. Um, right now, the government collects communications that are to and from a target, but they've also interpreted Section 702 to mean that it's okay to collect communications about a target. And that means that they're collecting communications between two people who aren't targets at all under the surveillance program, but their communication happens to mention the target. That, oh, wow. seems, that seems a little extreme to us, um, um, and it's something that we definitely want to talk about in terms of the value of that intelligence gathering and whether or not we can get rid of it. Um, and then finally, one of our priorities is to eliminate what's called the backdoor search loophole. And, and this is where um, the government, um, probably the FBI, um, queries data that is gathered under Section 702 without a warrant for information about Americans. Now, the reason that 702 data can be gathered without a warrant is because it's supposed to be focused on non-U.S. people located abroad, and it's also supposed to be focused on foreign intelligence, you know, national security information. Um, so when the FBI is allowed to query all of this data that gets swept up incidentally through that program for information about Americans, which couldn't have been targeted in the first place through collection, um, and information that doesn't even involve foreign intelligence or national security, that seems counterintuitive, and it seems to go against the protections that Congress specifically put in the statute when it created this program. So we want to fix that. It's really a bait and switch. They yeah. sold the program as a way to target people who are outside the United States, who aren't Americans, and they said it wouldn't affect Americans. Then they turn around, they have a broad collection against people outside the United States, as I said, 90,000 plus targets. They hold the data for a long time, and then they do the searches uh, of that data based on US person identifiers, like your email address, like mm -hmm. your phone number, as if um, Congress was telling them, yes, target these people abroad, but really, really, you want to check to see whether Americans are talking to them. That's not what Congress had in mind. Interesting. So there was actually, you mentioned the, the backdoor search loophole. There was an amendment to an appropriations bill in the House of Representatives uh, that actually just got voted down last week. Um, and even though it had passed, a similar amendment had passed, or the exact same amendment, I'm not sure, uh, previously, you know, what was this amendment? Did, it, did that address the backdoor uh, search loophole that you just mentioned? And why did it fail this time? What was the factors that kind of made it turn? Well, the amendment did address the backdoor search loophole. It would have prohibited funds from being used um, to query Section 702 data with a U.S. person identifier without a warrant. Um, and, and that's exactly the type of reform that we've been advocating for. Um, unfortunately, this amendment came up for a vote at a very tough time um, in America. We, we, just a few days ago, witnessed one of the most brutal um, terrorist attacks, um, massacres, really, um, in our recent history in Orlando. Um, and, and having a vote come up so quickly after a tragedy like that, when a lot of members of Congress understandably want to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again, 
it's an incredibly tough sell, even if it makes a lot of sense, and even if it would not have prevented that attack in the first place. Um, I think another thing that led to its downfall was the fact that the amendment also would have prohibited funds from going towards requesting or requiring companies to supply backdoors to encryption or other security mechanisms into their technology. And, you know, I think a lot of members of Congress haven't figured that one out yet. It's obviously really clear where CDT stands. Um, but tying those two things together, I think, was another contributing factor for the amendment failing this time the, around. The thing is, um, the Orlando attack um, by Omar Mateen, you know, I don't think it's really related to the Section 702 issue. Um, the government had... Mateen in its sights. It had opened. It had opened an investigation of him based on statements he made that concerned his co-workers. Once the government opens an investigation, it doesn't have to look for your information in these other uh, databases. It can target you directly, mm -hmm. and it can go in front of the FISA court and get one of these Section 215 orders. All they have to do is show that the information that they're seeking who you communicated with is relevant to their investigation of you. Well, that should be pretty easily done in a case like this. Uh, we don't know whether they use that authority, um, but again, I don't think it's a reason to vote against this change. Mm -hmm. I think, as Yaja said, it was more uh, an emotional reaction. Sure, that makes sense. And I know that actually, Yaja, you're from Florida, so this this case uh, or that massacre really hits you. So. Um, Good point to raise. Yeah. Let's pivot a little bit here and talk about Privacy Shield. Um, so Privacy Shield, um, I know that we've been saying here at CDT for a bit that you know the reforms when Safe Harbor was struck down, you know the reforms that Privacy Shield brought about, maybe not good enough, and that it's really uh, this statute, Section Seven Hundred Two, that needs to re be reformed to address the concerns raised in the Schrems case. Think, Is that true? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, look, uh, when the European court looks to see whether data that Facebook and Google and Microsoft and the other U.S. providers are transferring uh, from Europe to the United States, they are asking themselves, is that data adequately protected? The companies can protect it themselves to some degree. The companies cannot protect it against the demands by the U.S. government under this program, under Section 702. And what um, the European court will be asking when it examines this issue again is whether U.S. surveillance law meets human rights standards when it comes to the government's demands for this data. And in our view, U.S. law falls short because the um, Again, the purpose of the surveillance can be so broad, uh, and the uses um, to which the data can be put are also broad. So I, I think that, you know, Privacy Shield, it's important to transatlantic trade, but frankly, it's a, it's a, it's a Band-Aid on a wound that's going to require a tourniquet. There, a lot more needs to be done to reform U.S. surveillance law. So if all the reforms that you're recommending for Section 702 um, happened, do you think then U.S. law would be sufficient? I think it would significantly increase the chance of U.S. law surviving that examination that's going to happen in Europe. You know, you know we keep, we're talking about Europe, but 
we also measure U.S. law against the U.S. Constitution. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and um, challenges have been brought to this program, uh, in particular based on this uh, backdoor searching uh, in, uh, and, uh, and, and the breadth of the collection as well. A lot of those challenges, though, they don't go forward because the government makes claims about state secrets and that it can't disclose to a person whether they were actually surveilled. Interesting. Well, the Europeans don't have those same rules. You don't have to prove you were actually surveilled in order to bring uh, the kind of challenge that this that's being brought to this uh, to this law. It's not actually a direct challenge to the law. It's a challenge to uh, the finding that um, uh, the Europeans' data is adequately protected after it's transferred. Yeah, and that's an incredibly important point. One thing, one aspect of the Schrems decision that a lot of people don't talk about is the fact that in that decision, the CJAU specifically gave standing to all European citizens <laughs> who may be concerned about what's happening with their data. And they said that if these civilians come forward to their data protection authority and they say, I have these concerns and here's why, that DPA is actually required now to investigate. Um, There are a lot of DPAs in Europe. Um, A lot of attention is about to be paid to 702 as it comes up for sunset in December 2017. So a lot more information about this program is about to be released, and I suspect a lot more concerns are going to be raised because of that. So how about I get you two into the prediction business, which is always risky. Uh, As you said, it is about to sunset in December of 2017. Odds are, I mean, it's not nothing going to happen this year, right? No. Maybe, probably not. Um, what about the prospects for Congress doing anything in 2017? Yaja? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, your guess is as good as mine, honestly. I, I think you're right that in 2016, it's, it's probably not going to happen. We're about to start off with the August recess, and we're in an election year. No one's going to really want to do anything. But as of 2017, you know, um, all, all I can say is is that um, we're trying to educate members of Congress as much as we can. We're trying to have our legislative reform proposals ready. And we're trying to talk to a lot of people who we know are going to support us and be on our side. So um, hopefully we'll prevail again, just like we did with USA Freedom. I, I think that we will get some reforms, Brian. I'm not, I'm not sure how extensive they will be. Um, I kind of doubt that the program will be reauthorized as is. There, there's been enough um, data out there to show that it's probably overbroad, can be narrowed, uh, and can be narrowed without making it less effective. Great. Well, of course, I mean, Greg and Yaja's analysis is the way to go. So all policymakers should be reading that, and everyone who wants to influence it should read that. Um, thank you so much for joining Tech Talk. Always a pleasure to have you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. Be sure to visit CDT's website, cdt.org, for the latest updates on our government surveillance reform efforts. And also follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or connect with us on LinkedIn. I'm Brian Wozolowski. Thanks so much for listening.